0: This is an ABC podcast. I was introduced by the host to some key prominent people at the event. As this is Amanda Rose. She's from Parramatta, but that's okay because, wait for it, she's gorgeous, she's smart, and she's dating a politician. So I was like, are you kidding me? You know, that's extremely humiliating. Like I needed to get the approval.
1: um, But I also just had that moment of, wow, this is real. This is so real. Entrepreneur Amanda Rose. And Amanda's not alone because although we might like to think we live in a classless society in Australia, the struggle is real. Recent research has found class is the biggest barrier to inclusion at work. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong, and today on This Working Life, we're taking a hammer to the class ceiling. Amanda has founded six businesses, and as one of the country's foremost strategic connectors, she's invited to many events. And believe it or not, at that event, things got even worse. I was talking to a gentleman, and he was you know, chatting, he was actually flirting, to be honest.
0: And I was like, okay, I'll suffer this because something might come of it, business-wise, mind you. And his parents turned up and he saw them, saw that, that he was talking to me. He panicked and turned his back on me mid-conversation. And then that was it. Like I was dead to him for the rest of the event. How did you feel in that moment? I, I felt like crap. You know, I was, I thought, I mean, how humiliating can you get? Like, could you get any worse than that? And I was like, wow. And I thought, that's it. I'm out. I'm done. You know, in that same event, I was also told that I wouldn't be included in any local media if I admitted or said that I was from Parramatta. So I said, fine, say that I'm from Rose Bay.
1: (laughs) And it actually got
0: into the local paper and it says, Amanda Rose from Rose Bay.
1: Well, there's so much in that. It's very loaded. So what were all some of the things that you were thinking in your head? And feeling um, well, I wanted her to set herself on fire. Uh, that was
0: the first thing I thought of, um, and then straight away, I realized i 'm probably the most confident person I know, and i 'll go for anything. Imagine other girls and women that are facing this you know on a daily basis, and they would just hide away, give up, not go for it because this is what they're they 're facing you know like why be ambitious if this is the type of conversation you're going to have or how someone's going to introduce you at an event. And it is real. You know, I've dealt with the stigma my whole life. But as a businesswoman, you think, wow, it's still there and it is. And I thought things have got to change. And instead of trying to get the other side, so to speak, to change their perceptions and their attitude and, I don't know, not be so rude and horrible, I thought, how about I lead a change from my perspective
1: and from my people? So that's when I started Western Sydney Women. Amanda's organisation runs bespoke programs to help women re-enter the workforce and they recently expanded to create a network for executives who live and work in the West and organisations like this are imperative in levelling the playing field. Lisa Anise is CEO of Diversity Council Australia. We know
2: that if you went to a certain school, if you went to the right universities or you had the right networks then you're much more likely to be successful in Australian business. We only need to look at the people who are leading the biggest Australian organisations to know that they all tend to have a fairly similar background. And so for me, it was important to ask the question around their social class We have been having many conversations around the impact that gender diversity has or that LGBTQI plus identity has, or indeed, if you are First Nations or you have a disability. But without examining your social class, I think that that's a conversation that is incomplete.
1: Now, what do you mean by social class? I do like the quote that I found in your report. Social class is a little like swagger. It's hard to define, tough to measure, but you know it when you see it. Yes, your class is defined by a number of things. Some of them are
2: fixed. Your family that you were born into, your wealth as a family, although that can change over time, but by and large, family wealth can be quite fixed. Also, the school that you went to, even the university you went to, by the time you're an adult in the workforce, those things will not change. They're part of who you are, including potentially your networks. Other things change enormously and they include things like your profession or your job, your level of education, but also um, your income and your professional identity taken together These are the things that we mean to be social class. And so it's really important to recognise that there are many factors at play. And in Australia, we have to name those because we think that we live in a classless society. In Australia, we believe that we have torn off the shackles from our colonial past and that we don't have a formal class system in the way that they have in the United Kingdom or indeed in other parts of the world. However, class does exist and it's real and it has an impact on the opportunities and the inclusion experiences of individuals in a workplace.
1: I asked Amanda Rose why there was so much stigma around the western suburbs of Sydney.
0: Essentially, it has always been seen as
1: you're the working class, you're
0: the group that aren't ambitious. It was kind of seen as the dumping ground for people they didn't want or companies they didn't want. It's just this classism, which I find fascinating because there's a lot of money in Western Sydney, a lot of established families that um, have built this country, essentially manufacturing and everything from Western Sydney. But it's, it's essentially, oh, you're from the West, so you mustn't be smart, you must be a drug dealer, uh, that you have no dreams, no, you're a welfare bludger. All these attitudes are just instantly associated to Western Sydney.
1: Have you always been conscious about this or was there a specific point in which you really started becoming aware of class as an obstacle? In the workforce is really when it happened.
0: Right. Out in the corporate world, it was so prominent. And just out in the business world, political world, it was very much, oh, you're from where exactly? Oh, way out west. Oh, okay. Well, haven't you done well for yourself? Or are you able to do this job? (laughs) No, I can't add up, you know. Um, But in the corporate world, it's actually so bad that I couldn't say where I'd worked before or even where you live. I have girls that I know that had to lie completely about so much
1: just to get an interview. And- so, you're talking about these sides which have uh, so much built into them in terms of prejudice and discrimination. Yes. How do, how else does it play out in the workplace? It's really interesting
0: because one thing I, I believe we can't change is classism. We can change everything else. And the reason why I say that is, you know, we uh, talk about diversity and Western Sydney, the most diverse region in Australia, and I would say even the world, which is fantastic. So we all get along and we all accept each other's differences. And in the workplace, they're very tokenistic in making sure they've got diversity. But the thing is, the classism, it's fascinating because you could come from a different culture and look different, but if you're in with them, so if you come from their area or you come from money, they'll accept you. And then the problem is that in the workplace, there's a divide. There's a divide of the people that work there that come from the West and those that don't. And you can see that from hanging out at lunchtime to being offered opportunities. It's actually quite prevalent, but a lot of people don't speak up about it because they'll be penalised for
1: it. And you mentioned tokenism. Do you think that diversity and inclusion programs at work help?
0: If it's genuine, you know, if it's top down, like from the board, if the board is diverse and they're... um, passionate about doing the right thing, like just hiring the right people because of who they are. But a lot of companies do it as ticking a box, just like community engagement and all these other things. And now we're getting into the tokenism of Western Sydney. So now you'll get people saying, oh, you're from Western Sydney. They'll ask a few questions to see if you're related to any of the infrastructure or any of the money that's been invested in Western Sydney. And they want a piece of it. All of a sudden, they're interested.
1: Research by Diversity Council Australia supports Amanda's account of her experience of class discrimination at work. Lisa Anise. Class, more than any other marker of somebody's
2: identity, had an impact on their inclusion experience and their exclusion experience in the workplace. More than their gender, more than their age, their cultural background, or whether or not they had a disability or whether they were Indigenous the class with which you exist in is the most likely marker of your predictor to become the CEO. It's also one of the biggest predictors of your experience of exclusion, so experiencing harassment or bullying. Now, it has to be said that's not black and white in that there are things that complicate the experience of class. So, for example, the more intersectional your identity is. So, if you are a lower class woman with a disability, your exclusion experiences will be worse than if you are a lower class woman without a disability. That every aspect of your identity which deviates from what we would consider very, you know, precociously or facetiously as human neutral, you know, the straight, cisgendered, able-bodied, Anglo-Celtic male, every deviation from that reduces your ability to be on the mainstream in terms of a career trajectory.
1: However, class is the one that has the single most impact. Lisa, why does this matter from a company's perspective? Give me the business case for addressing class division at work. The higher the levels of inclusion are in the team, the more
2: likely they are to have staff who give discretionary effort, the more likely they are to have staff who are, uh, who take minimal absenteeism, the more likely they are to have staff who are able to balance their work and their family life. It reduces risk. It reduces the risk of harassment and bullying. It reduces the risk of sexual harassment. It reduces the risk of mental health issues and wellbeing issues. It even reduces the risk of workplace health and safety accidents. So, The business case is really clear for a diverse and inclusive team, but you need to put the effort in as an organisation to A, hire for diversity, but then B, make it
1: work. So that's the business case. Now back to the human case. After his parents' divorce, Rick Morton grew up on the poverty line in country Queensland, He documents the impact of this hand-to-mouth existence in his unflinching memoir, A Hundred Years of Dirt. Rick's background would go on to shape his journalism career in a very real way. But class wasn't immediately obvious to him.
3: It took me a while um, because I was so sheltered. And so I knew we didn't have anything, but I also grew up in a, you know, when we eventually moved to a little country town called Boona. You know, most people there were fairly middle of the road, they weren't rich, and we had poor kids who had less than me even. And beyond that, there wasn't much stratification, if you know what I mean? yeah. And then the first time I really knew that the world was much bigger than that and that the gaps were much bigger than that was when I got a scholarship to a private university on the Gold Coast called Bond. And I went to Bond as this scholarship kid with no idea about the world. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm living with the son of a man worth $250 million and – People there are just fabulously wealthy. And I'm also starting to work for the first time because I've got a cadetship with the Gold Coast Bulletin. And that was really an awakening for me in the sense that I knew that I had a lot of ground to make up. (laughs) Like I had no idea, not just uh, no money, but no idea about how money functions. And I had no cultural capital. I didn't know how to have conversations with people who were from, you know, quote unquote, the right schools. I didn't grow up with the right books in my house. So I didn't know, you know, how to talk about Marxism or capitalism or economics or, you know, Keynesian kind of economics or any of these things. I didn't know about philosophy. And so it was just at every level, I was unequipped to be in the world that I found myself in. But even so, the kind of reckoning that I had to have with how that was affecting me still hadn't hit home yet. That would take another few years.
1: And then, Just in terms of that work environment then, um, the people, how did they react to you? Was there any sense of them Mm. um, treating you any differently?
3: Not, and and this is the thing, it's not the same as race or or even sexuality Mm. in that sense. It's so much more subtle, I think. It's not a deliberate, oh my God, look, we've got a poor person in the office, but it's just everyday lack of understanding. And that continued on into my, you know, my seven years at the Australian newspaper where I was surrounded by people who went to the right schools. They either had both their parents still married or both their parents still involved in their lives. They had financial backing. They had security. And they went to, you know, Sydney University or a good university that they were able to stay at because they didn't have all these other costs, you know, incurred in their life. And so they they end up in this newsroom where they see the world through the prism of people who've made it, right? And, and and that's how policy is kind of designed in this country. So it's like, well if you know, if most Australians can go to university and can then land their their job, why can't you do it? Um, or it was even, you know, this little conversation about buying houses. Mm. So it was just not on my radar at all because I could never afford it. And there were these people who would be like, Oh yeah, no, I managed to save up. I'm like, oh my God. And I would genuinely be like, that's amazing. Like, how did you do it? And they'd be like, oh, well, obviously I got 50 grand from mum and dad. And I was like, well, it's not so obvious to me <laughs> because that was never available. And so there's this kind of day by day, hour by hour, the little things that they, the little asides, the little um, questions about why you can't do X, Y, Z, and it's because you don't have any money. I remember when I first started at The Australian, I was, I was hired and told my start date. So I quit my previous job. And then the start date came along, and I was told that they didn't have a contract ready. And I was like, I don't have any money. Like I like actually do not have a single dollar in my savings. I've never had savings as an adult. And I think it was because I presented as such a sad case that they actually ended <laughs> up allowing me to start work and invoicing them to start off with before the contract was ready. Because I was like, I don't. I quit my job. You know, other people can do that and then be like, all oh, right, well, I guess I'll wait for the contract and either use their savings or. And get some help from friends and family. I'd just moved to Sid- Sydney a year before from Brisbane and I was spending a fortune on rent and all of these things. So it was just like this
1: assumption, Faith yeah, in assumptions. All now, of
3: these assumptions.
1: What I love is that you've turned this perspective and experience into your strength. So tell me about the Medicare levy and mm-hmm. how it illustrates that class divide at the newspaper you worked at at the time.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, that was the turning point for me. So that was, I think it was, what, 2014, 2014, the big Abbott hockey budget gets handed down from the Commonwealth and they want to implement a $7 GP co-payment. And, of course, you know, the Australian were huge on policy and we cover all this stuff. And it's over the summer period when Rupert Murdoch's back in town and he decides, you know, not directly, but Rupert's interested in it as an issue. So then we start covering it seriously. And... I remember being in conference with the editors and them just saying, well, it's $7, what's all the hoo-ha about? Like, why are people complaining? And I remember sitting there going, $7 is everything. Like, particularly, and I saw everything through the prism of my mum, right? Because she was one of these people who, through her own sheer effort to get her kids out of poverty, had to remain there herself because she couldn't spend time or effort on herself on you know getting a better education or any of these things because she was just trying to put food on the table, and I remember thinking seven dollars is literally the difference between whether she can eat or not in any given week. Or you know at that point she just clawed her way into a position where she was allowed she allowed herself one treat a week, which was a hot chocolate once a week with the girls from work at a little cafe in Boona, and it was four dollars or thereabouts, and that was that was all she could do. That was her treat. And I just remember thinking, they don't get it. They don't. And they're not mean. They're not being nasty. They're not saying poor people are terrible. They actually just do not understand. And so that was the point where I'm like, do you know what? My experience is actually not. um, I thought it was, you know, I didn't think there was any systemic force to it because I hadn't been, you know, I didn't learn anything in theory. I learned it in practice in, in my own life. And then I realized, I'm like, well, there's actually something about growing up with nothing. There is a psychology to it and there is a physics to it about how you can make a dollar last. And that's something that there's value in sharing that with other people because these people, these very smart people in this room who are lovely people for the most part, the senior journalists, the editors, they actually cannot conceive of why $7 would be such an impulse that it might actually ruin someone's life.
1: And was that just um, you just kept on going or was there any advice that you would give on speaking up and having the courage to grow your voice?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's it's really hard because I don't remember a time, because you've got to remember, like, my class position, even though now I'm successful and I'm doing well with books and, and my other journalism, um, and on paper I'm middle class, right, structurally my conditions have not changed. Like, if I lost my job tomorrow, I would be straight back to where I was in my 20s. And so all the while I'm doing this at The Australian, trying to – kind of increase my footprint, I guess, in terms of my impact at The Australian and on its journalism. Um, I'm also worried that if I lose my job, then not only am I staffed, but I also can't send money back to mum, which is what I had been doing. Um, And also, you know, in the early days of being at The Australian, helping my sister through her midwifery degree because she was going to university and and so I don't want to lose my job because I'm staffed and I don't have confidence in the way that people who grew up with money have confidence. And so I'm not convinced that if I lost my job I'd get another one at all so it was just a gradual kind of increasing my knowledge base and increasing what I learned to do and this is I think this is a very good advice in general was to not be emotional in my arguments and and I had to be like this growing up gay in queensland as well I could never be like but I'm a human being because no one cared about that argument right They just didn't, and and it was the same with, you know, but I'm poor. Like, no one cares about that emotional argument. They should, but they don't. And so I was always arguing in terms of, um, like, you know, for example, when I was writing about employment services and Job Active and how they kind of make these unemployed people go through this awful roulette machine and, you know, force them to apply for 20 jobs a month and the government pays, you know, $1.7 billion a year to these private providers to make sure it all happens. I kept saying to the editors, I'm like, this is bad policy. This is bad policy and it's bad use of taxpayer funding because we are actually spending a fortune to enrich these companies that actually have no observable benefit for unemployed people. Like they're not doing what the government says they want them to do. And so I was always framing my arguments because I had to in cold hard facts and and that gave me, I think, the credibility within the institution that I wouldn't otherwise have had. But it also meant kind of carving out a little bit of myself and not feeling some of the things I felt at the time.
1: Do you have any thoughts on how to make workplaces better in terms of this? It's,
3: it's so hard because, I mean, I, mean the, I think the thing that makes it better in the end is more of us. So, you know, in my experience, it would be helpful if there were more people from different backgrounds in journalism, in newsrooms. And that's not just in terms of class, but in terms of race and, and gender and all the rest of it. The more voices there are, the more understanding there is. I mean, what I was trying to do was knit together some kind of understanding for people who had never lived any of the things I was trying to convince them of. And so it was really difficult. And now, obviously, in those circumstances, you need empathy and you need people to have, you know, to be willing to come with an open mind. You're relying on them to act in good faith. Whereas the simplest solution is to have, and and it's not simple at all, unfortunately, but is to have more people from the backgrounds in any workplace whether it's journalism or not um, because when I talk to people who grew up poor or when people contact me after reading my book they're just like you get it and it's and it's like hearing an Australian accent when you're overseas going oh my god there's one of us and there's power in that I think there's power in those numbers but I don't know how you actually achieve that because you know to use my industry as an example journalism it's increasingly a middle class affair because it's so hard to get into it's so lowly paid at the beginning, like to do those 10 years before you start earning decent money. But there's still a lot of kind of an almost prestige attached to it. And so increasingly, people who are going into it are people who can afford to fail because they know that there's a safety net somewhere to catch them.
1: So what do we need to do to address the class divide at work?
2: It's how you run your business. It's how you make decisions. It's where you recruit. It's um, how you develop the talent. Do you put just as much value on talent that doesn't necessarily have the pedigree you're looking for? Because the pedigree usually is only in the eye of the beholder. It's because the leading forces have determined that these are the best universities and so therefore um, that is the blueprint that we want for positions that we will groom for seniority within the hierarchy. Well, if you start to smash that model, you will get a much more class-diverse organisation.
3: One thing I wish I could tell myself back then was to not be as scared as I was because a lot of my silence was self-inflicted like the people I was working with did not mind a debate they did not mind an argument but I was terrified of making it and so I the one thing that you've got through all of these things is is who you are and I think I it's not like I became a different person but I moved away from it in order to protect myself but I lost a little bit of what I was as a person and I think the most valuable thing I could have done was to stand up for myself to be honest about my experiences and what they meant and and why it mattered in that particular workplace. Be
0: proud of who you are and do not expect people to accept you. Don't care at all about what other people think. It is the most powerful thing you can do is not care about what people think, but start to speak up about who you are, where you're from and be proud of it. And then you'll have, you'll see a ripple effect that others will do the same.
1: Entrepreneur and founder of Western Sydney Women, Amanda Rose. Thanks also to journalist Rick Morton and CEO of Diversity Council Australia, Lisa Anise. And if you want to know more, you can find a link to the Diversity Council's report into class discrimination on This Working Life's program page. If you like what we do, please hit share and send our podcast to your friends. Help them find a little sunshine at work. Thanks to producers Cara Jensen-McKinnon and Maria Tickle. I'm Lisa Leong, and until next week, keep working.